Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge of potential scores. Stay tuned for a message from our sponsor at the end of the podcast. We'll be continuing our quick hit series, which reviews questions from the last five to eight years of the in-service exams. And today we'll be discussing hand fingertip amputations, dupatrins, and vascular. And remember to check out our website, www.theresidentreview, to follow along with our outline. So starting with a little bit of anatomy, there's just a couple things to note. The common digital nerves lie deep to the arteries in the palm, but become superficial distally. So if you're thinking about an injury in the palm, you'll encounter the artery first, but in the digit, you'll encounter the nerve first, volarly. There's a couple of signs which we're frequently tested on. The first one is the quadriga effect. This is a restriction and flexion of the adjacent digits resulting from an uncommon muscular origin of the profundus tendon. So if you attach to your distal stump of your amputation, you can get a quadriga effect, which means that you get restriction and flexion of your adjacent digits. The lumbrical plus deformity is a deformity that results when the profundus tendons retract proximally and pull on the lumbrical tendons. And so you'll get paradoxical extension at the PIP with attempted flexion. And like I said, this results from a retracted FDP at the lumbrical origin, and it increases the lumbrical pull. Treatment of this includes sectioning or division of the lumbrical muscle. And this can be caused by amputations, FDP interposition grafts, or lengthening procedures. I'll quickly go over digital replantation as well. So indications for digital replantation. So they should always be attempted in a child, except for when it is severely crushed, segmental injuries that preclude a good outcome, or there are other life-threatening injuries that preclude surgery. You should always attempt digital replantation in a thumb. Multiple digits is an indication for replantation and an amputation of the finger distal to the FDS insertion, so distal to the metal phalanx. Contraindications or relative contraindications include a single digital amputation proximal to the FDS, multiple segmental injuries of the hand, acute life-threatening injuries are the only true contraindication. And in workers, you can have a relative contraindication if they need to return to work quickly. We're tested on this frequently, but amputated digits can tolerate a cold ischemia of up to 24 hours and only six to 12 hours if it's warm ischemia time. In patients with an upper extremity amputation, so we're moving away from the digits, the order of fixation, you'd perform a prophylactic fasciotomy. You'd then fixate the bone, artery, vein, nerve. And then if it presents late, you want to shunt before you do any of this. And you can do this with a silastic shunt or a pediatric IV tubing. You want to make sure the amputated limb is cool until microvascular anastomosis is completed. We were tested on that. And then if you replant multiple digits, which is what we've been talking about, you want to go structure by structure, starting with bone, then tendon, artery, nerve, and veins last. If there is an extensive zone of injury or avulsion mechanism, the use of vein grafts permit anastomosis outside the zone of injury and increase the chances for success. Mechanism of injury is the most predictable factor for success in replantation, but the only factor correlated with survival in a replantation is repair two or more dorsal veins. There are some factors that correlate with failure of a replantation or more likelihood of failure, and that includes psychotic disorders, peripheral vascular disease, and electrolyte imbalances. Heterotopic replantation, which is the replantation of one finger on an adjacent digit, can be used for multiple crush injuries or segmental injuries of the thumb. If you have venous congestion immediately after replantation, remember you always wanna assess your dressings. So take off your dressings first, you can remove some sutures, maybe there's some constriction, and then you wanna consider leeches if all else fails. And then remember to perform proper workup of your trauma patients prior to digital replantation. So if the patient has a rollover MVC, you wanna be obtaining C-spine x-rays, which we were tested on a couple of years ago. 
Anna, why don't you take us through a little bit of amputation and nail bed injuries? Great. So first, composite grafting, which is non-microsurgical replant of an amputated finger, may be appropriate for children ages two to six. And it's important to amputate in general at the level of good vascular tissue in order to assure good coverage. In terms of ring avulsion injuries, there are three types. Type one, there is adequate circulation. In type two, the circulation is inadequate and vessel repair is needed. And type three is a complete degloving injury. You use the long finger ulnar digital artery for revascularization. The most successful avulsion replantation involves resection of the injured vessels and vein grafting. So in terms of, for a ray amputation, the scap is closed by suturing the deep intervolar plate ligaments or by performing a ray transposition. And in general, we're asked which is the most aesthetic outcome, and it is a ray amputation. A history of renal failure or kidney transplantation is associated with the highest risk of amputation in diabetic patients with hand infections. And then sometimes we're asked about the benefits of wrist disarticulation versus a transradial amputation. And the benefits of a wrist disarticulation is that it preserves the DRUJ and improves forearm rotation. However, it is difficult to fit a prosthesis and can lead to limb length discrepancy and patients are more likely to abandon their prosthesis. And then finally, we have target muscle reinnervation, which can provide better prosthesis control by input from the median and ulnar nerve signals. So to perform this, the resected nerves, like the median and ulnar nerves, can be co-opted to nerve branches to the remaining muscles, such as the pectoralis and deltoid. And transcutaneous EMG detectors are positioned over these reinnervation sites to detect nerve signals. And then finally, one question we've gotten recently is the minimal stump length for elbow function is 5 to 10 centimeters. And now we'll move on to discussing nail bed injuries, and we'll go through just a little bit of the vocabulary first. So the hyponychium is the junction of the nail bed and the fingertip skin beneath the distal margin of the nail. The perinychium extends along the lateral borders of the nail, and the epinychium is the distal part of the nail fold where it attaches to the surface of the nail. The lunula is the white arch just distal to the epinychium. So often in the ED, we perform trepanation when we see a subungual hematoma, and oftentimes you'll see that it's very painful. If the nail is torn, then the nail must be removed. And it's important to remind patients that nail growth is 0.1 millimeters per day, so it takes about three months for the nail to totally regrow. And when it regrows the first time, that's not the final result. It takes at least the second regrowth of the nail for it to appear normal. So for crush injuries, nail bed laceration is most closely associated with fracture of the distal phalanx. So most patients that present with a subungual hematoma also have a nail bed laceration. If the nail bed's lacerated, you can perform a primary repair. However, for crush injuries or avulsion injuries, the nail bed must be first debrided, and then you can use a split matrix graft from uninjured portions of the nail bed if you're not able to perform a primary repair. If there is a germinal matrix injury, you can use a germinal matrix graft. And split matrix grafts can be used for sterile matrix nail reconstruction in patients with bifid nails or epinicheal or hyponicheal pterygium. Split nails may undergo excision and primary closure if they're small. However, if they're greater than a third or up to a third of the nail, they need further grafting. 
For sterile matrix reconstruction, split grafting from the toe can be used. And then when germinal matrix is involved, it will require a full thickness graft. A couple of deformities to be aware of. First is the pincer or trumpet nail deformity, which is excess transverse curvature of the nail and pinching of the soft tissue of the distal fingertip. And for this, you'll remove the nail plate, elevate the nail bed from the sides of the distal phalanx, and perform a dermal graft, which is placed under the lateral medial portions of the nail bed. And then a hook deformity or hook nail occurs when there is lack of bony support or loss of sterile matrix. And you need about two millimeters of tuft distal to the sterile matrix for that support. And you can perform a cross finger flap and bone graft. And the nail is then supported by the dorsal tuft of the distal phalanx. And then squamous cell carcinoma of the nail bed, you'll need to amputate the entire distal phalanx and other squamous cell carcinomas of the hand, you'll need one centimeter margins. And so something to be aware of if there's a chronic perinichia, it's typically a fungal infection. Uh, if it does not respond, then you'll need to biopsy due to consideration of it could be squamous cell. Other nail deformities include psoriatic arthritis, and here you'll see crumbling of the nail plate, leukonychia, and oncolysis. All right, Rachel, do you want to take us through some of the soft tissue defects? In general, so we'll go through soft defects of the digits, and then we'll go through soft tissue reconstruction of the thumb. So in general, when you see a patient in the ED, if the wounds are less than 1.5 centimeters and you have no exposed bone on your distal fingertip, you can allow this to undergo healing by secondary intention. This has the best recovery of sensation. And then last year we were tested on what kind of dressing we should use. And the dressing should be weekly semi-occlusive dressings like Tegaderm. Daily hydrogen peroxide can limit the wound healing and cause drying out, which is why surgeons tend to favor the weekly changes of the semi-occlusive dressing. The Adesoy Kleinert flap, this is a homodigital V2Y advancement of the volar pulp tissue and a transverse or oblique fingertip injury. So again, it's good for oblique fingertip injuries. It is contraindicated in volar injuries. As you know, you're taking the volar pulp tissue, so you need that. We get tested on dorsal oblique injuries. You can only advance the distal edge one centimeter, and this can have near normal sensibility. Homodigital island flap. So this raises the skin and fat overlying one of the neurovascular digital bundles, and that could be advanced distally over distal pulp defects of the finger. So you need both digital arteries to be present since you're sacrificing one. And then the reverse homodigital island flap is a distally based flap to repair fingertip injuries. So the pedicle is based on the contralateral digital artery, which we were tested on a couple of years ago. And this as well provides immediate near normal sensibilities. So Secondary intention, adazoic Kleinert flaps and homo digital island flaps all have near normal sensibility. The Cutler flap is a bilateral V-wide advancement, and it is also sensate. It is good for lateral oblique injuries on the distal finger. And then there are heterodigital island flaps, and this violates a normal digit. It's like the homo digital island flap, but it's from a separate finger. So the sensibility is not as good and you need cortical retraining. This can be used for ulnar thumb pulp defects or for ulnar sided finger defects. And like I said, it does require cortical relearning. The next flap is a cross finger flap. This is for entire volar surface defects of the distal phalanx, so distal third. It should not be used in workers that need good hand function postoperatively if bone is exposed. The cross finger flaps are best if used in younger patients due to the high risk of flexion contractures. And it's useful for large volar injuries, like I stated. You elevate the tissue from the adjacent finger on the dorsum middle phalanx, just dorsal to the peritoneum, and then perform a pedicle transfer to the adjacent volar digit. You inset it, and then division is at eight to 10 days. Remember, this has poor sensibility. 
a reverse cross finger flap can be used to cover the dorsum of the finger, but the, remember that the recipient dorsum middle phalanx receives is the skin graft as the skin graft is used to cover the donor digit. The adipofascial turndown flap is good for small dorsal defects of the finger. The base of the flap is proximal to the defect, and then you cover with a split thickness skin graft. A flag flap is similar to a cross finger flap, and this is used for proximal phalanx or metacarpal joints. And then the thenar flap, which we're sometimes tested on, is used for large bull or oblique injuries of the index and middle fingers. The skin and sub-Q is elevated over the palm, and then you inset the fingers and divide the flap at 10 to 14 days. The toe pulp flap is another flap that we use for finger defects. This is based on the metatarsal arteries and saphenous system and is innervated by the deep peroneal nerve. This is useful for wounds greater than 50% of the volar and dorsal parts of the thumb or fingers, and it does provide sensation. So if you have a large tissue loss, a toe pulp flap is an option. And then finally, mangled hand injuries, you must consider all aspects, including comorbidities. So we had a question, I believe last year or the year before that had a patient that was very ill, had just had an MI and they came in with a mangled hand and the answer was a fillet flap and the avoidance of free flap. So a fillet flap allows a one stage surgery for reconstruction and all the other options were either an extended surgery or multiple operations. And remember, like I said, for dorsal hand coverage, the posterior interosseous flap may be used. And you can also take that with the ulna and EPL, which we were testing on a few years ago. Finally, we'll talk a little bit about adduction contractures of the thumb. You need to make sure that you perform a complete contracture release and then resurfacing. Web space deepening is useful in patients with distal thumb amputations in good motion via the four-flap Z-plasty. A reverse PIA is typically the best choice for adduction contractures and for dorsal hand wounds if they're large. The FD may flap may also be used for adduction contractures of the thumb if it's a bit smaller. And then you also need to consider resection of your first dorsal interossei if that's involved. So moving forward to thumb, we have the Mober flap, which we are typically tested on. This is for volar and distal thumb defects up to two centimeters. So it's 1.5 to two centimeters. If it's islandized, it can be two centimeters. Other it's 1.5 centimeter defects. It has sensory innervated skin, and this can be used to cover exposed bone. It is harvested with both digital arteries and digital nerves, and then you splint inflection two to three weeks. And the reason why the thumb still remains vascularized is because of the dorsal blood supply to the thumb. Remember that the Moberg has an axial pattern blood supply. It's not a random pattern flap. And the most common complication after the Moberg flap is the extension deficit at the IP joint. The cross finger flap, like we talked about earlier, this also may be used for distal volar defects of the thumb, i.e. the entire volar surface. This is not sensate, remember? There is a neurovascular island or pedicled flap, also known as the Littler flap. This is for distal one half injuries of the thumb, typically ulnar thumb defects. It takes one digital artery and digital nerve from the ring or long finger, and it cortical reinnervation can take up to one year. The next flap that we're frequently tested on is the first dorsal metacarpal artery flap. This is used for thumb reconstruction defects of up to four centimeters. It is an innervated skin flap and it's used typically for distal one-third thumb, dorsal or volar, degloving injuries, and web space. So this includes the superficial radial nerve and the first dorsal metacarpal artery, and it can provide protective sensation. The artery, remember, of course, is deep within the fascia of the first dorsal interossei muscle. And then the kite flap, which is a variation of this, is based off the first dorsal metacarpal artery, and this includes a rhomboid flap to close the donor site. The reverse radial artery flap is also great for thumb reconstruction. So now we'll talk about thumb amputations and what we can use for reconstruction of that. So remember, if we're talking about pulsization, this is useful for injuries through the thumb CMC joint. So remember, pulsization reconstructs the CMC joint. 
the index metacarpal base becomes the CMC, the proximal phalanx becomes the metacarpal and the middle phalanx becomes the proximal phalanx. If it is a more distal amputation and the patient desires an pulsization or does not want microsurgical reconstruction, you can still use an index pulsization, but you'll just take the appropriate amount of index finger for the reconstruction. This will lead to decreased grip strength. And then toe to thumb, this is based off the first dorsal metatarsal artery, which is a branch of the dorsalis pedis. We are tested on that. And this is the dominant blood supply for both the first and the second metatarsal. So first or second toe. The second toe transfer is the best aesthetic and functional improvement for functional reconstruction. And remember for a toe to thumb, you do need a metacarpal base. So you cannot perform this if you do not have a metacarpal base left on your thumb. And Hannah, why don't you take us through Dupuytren's and some vascular disease? All right. So we'll start with Dupuytren's. So this is autosomal dominant. It is most common in white males, often of Eastern European descent. Uh, patients often have a strong family history and it's associated with plantar fibromatosis and Pironi's disease. So the ring and small fingers are most commonly affected and myofibroblasts are responsible for the cord formation that you see in Dupuytren's. There are three stages. So first you'll have nodule formation and this is due to type three collagen. This will progress to cord formation without contracture and finally the cords will mature resulting in contracture. And we're commonly asked what ligaments are not involved in cords and it's Cleland's ligaments do not become involved. So at the MP joint, you can have a pretendinous cord or a pretendinous portion of a spiral cord. At the PIP, you have central cords, which are continuations of the pretendinous fibers of the palm or spiral cords, which consist of pretendinous bands, spiral or lateral sheets, Grayson's ligament. And importantly, a spiral cord displaces the neurovascular bundle superficial and central in the finger, which is important to be aware of uh, when you're operating on these patients. And there's also lateral cords, which run from the natatory ligament to the lateral digital sheet. And we also have a retrovascular cord, which causes contracture of the DIP. And the fascial structures that encase the neurovascular bundles of the finger Again, are the Cleland's ligaments, Grayson's lateral digital sheet, and retrovascular band. So just keep those in mind uh, when answering your questions. And Rachel, do you remember which one's dorsal and which one's volar? I believe the Grayson's ligament is volar and Cleland's is dorsal. Great. Our chief knows quite a bit. Off to hand fellowship soon. So the natatory ligament causes adduction contractures of the hand. So the natatory cord passes across the palm and attaches to each of the individual flexor tendon sheaths. So patients with natatory ligaments have limited finger abduction and PIP flexion contractures. So the neurovascular bundles shorten and any contracture release must be done with caution again to ensure that the finger is adequately perfused. And then for the small finger, the cord originates from the abductor digiti minimi musculotendinous junction. To treat a PIP contracture, this consists of releasing the checkering ligaments of the PIP joint, followed by the accessory collateral ligament and finally manipulation. So to evaluate patients with Dupuytren's, you can perform the Houston's tabletop test and this is positive. The patient is unable to place all fingers in a flat position on the tabletop simultaneously. So there are both non-operative and operative treatments for Dupuytren's. So non-operative include steroids for isolated painful nodules. 
and also patients can get dynamic extension splints. However, non-operative treatments are typically not effective and patients eventually do require surgery. So surgery for MP contractures are indicated if the contractures are greater than 30 to 40 degrees and any PIP contractures indication for surgery. Uh, limited fasciectomy has in general the best results. And we'll go back and talk a little bit about collagenase. So this is, can correct the flexion deformity of the MP. And when used on the PIP, it has higher rates of complications, and particularly when used in the small finger. So collagenase, which is from Clostridium histolyticum, is an injection that sits for about 24 hours and the patient comes back for manipulation. And again, better for the MPs. The rupture of the FDP can occur with injection of collagenase at the PIP, especially in the small finger. And if patients experience paresthesias or numbness after this, it's best to observe for eight weeks prior to any intervention. Important to know that limited fasciectomy has the longest longevity of results. And then needle fasciotomy can also be performed in the office. And a variant of that is needle fasciotomy lipofilling. And this works by reducing the myofibroblast contact and inhibiting myofibroblast proliferation. And not surprisingly, given the displacement of the neurovascular bundle, injury of the bundle is 1.5%. Regional pain syndrome is 8%. And the most common complication of Dupuytren's is recurrence. So we'll move on to talking about vascular disease. So a couple of miscellaneous facts first. Patients who have had previous radial artery cannulization had a 0.1% chance of permanent ischemic damage or pseudoaneurysm. The most likely complication of brachial artery monitoring is paresthesias in the median nerve distribution because the brachial artery travels adjacent to the median nerve. So for scleroderma or primary systemic sclerosis, the question stem will say that patients have shiny skin and stiffness of the joints, and this can lead to ulceration of the fingertips, and it's often associated with Raynaud's phenomenon or crest syndrome. So tip ulcerations from scleroderma are treated conservatively with debridement and limited resection of bone. And if this fails to respond, then the patient may need an amputation. Uh, so related is Raynaud's disease, and this can be either primary, idiopathic, or secondary, likely due to an autoimmune disorder. And this is a vasospastic disorder with triphasic color changes of the skin, and symptoms must be present for two years for diagnosis. And this is thought to be due to a hyperactive sympathetic activity. The first-line treatment is a calcium channel blocker, such as nifedipine, and this is followed by Botox or digital sympathectomy around the radial ulnar and digital arteries. If there are ulcers or ischemic changes, uh, then it's appropriate to move forward with those treatments. Botox inhibits Rho and Rho kinase activity, and the injection site is perivascular in the palm, 10 units each. Next, we'll talk about hypothenar hammer syndrome, and this is thrombosis of the ulnar artery in Guillain's canal. It's a true aneurysm and can result from a crush injury. You evaluate the patients with angiography or duplex, and this often presents as pain in the region of the hook of hamate, paresthesias, and decrease in temperature in the ulnar distribution and eventually can result in, in digit ischemia. You also see it in patients with repetitive trauma, such as construction workers. Again, they're evaluated with angiography, and you'll often see tortuosity of the ulnar artery. 
First, this can be treated with medical managements such as smoking cessation or cessation of the inciting event, calcium channel blockers or antiplatelet agents. However, this is always surgical if there's ulceration or the digital brachial index is less than 0.7. And in terms of surgical management, most commonly the thrombose segment is resected and then reconstructed with a graft, which is the ulnar artery to the proximal superficial arch. Important to be aware of complex regional pain syndrome. There are several stages. So stage one, you'll see pain out of proportion, hyperesthesia, edema, erythema, and hyperhidrosis. Stage two is the dystrophic phase, which lasts three to nine months and is characterized by stiffness, edema, altered blood flow, and osteopenia. And then in stage three, the patient has increased stiffness, pale, cool, and dry skin. However, in this stage, they do have decreased pain. So we've been tested on this before, but in a bone scan for CPRS, it will show increased periarticular uptake on the third phase, and phase one and two show autonomic dysfunction. Oftentimes, we're taught that digital blocks are very safe, but remember that it can cause digital ischemia, and if so, you can use an alpha adrenergic antagonist like fentolamine, used to reverse the effects of epinephrine hours to days after use and best to inject one to two milligrams locally. If a patient comes in with an ischemic limb, you'll begin your treatment by administering aspirin and heparin immediately before consideration of OR. I'll briefly go through compartment syndrome. This is very commonly tested. So remember the five Ps, pulselessness, paresthesias, pallor, pain out proportion to exam, and paralysis. And a fasciotomy is recommended if the compartment pressures exceed 30 uh, millimeters of mercury, or the difference between diastolic and compartment pressures is less than 30. Compartment pressure evaluated by manometry, and then consider early release of the carpal tunnel and Guillain's canal. For infiltration injuries, more than 100 cc's has been associated with compartment syndrome, and you can observe these with elevation if the symptoms are mild. And the decision for fasciotomy after infiltration is mainly just persistent pain. The Volkmann's contracture. This can present after 6 to 12 hours of ischemia, such as with compartment syndrome. And it affects the deep flexor compartments first. So FPL and FDP are affected first. And then the superficial flexors next and the superficial extensors are lastly affected. This can manifest weeks later as flexion at the elbow and wrist, pronation of the forearm, and adduction and flexion of the thumb. You can also see extension at MP, flexion at the IP, and loss of sensation from the median and ulnar nerves. And this is treated with exploration of the forearm, neurolysis of the median and ulnar nerves, and then muscle sliding or tendon lengthening procedures. And then free innervated muscle transfer can be used in extreme cases. In patients who have spasticity after an anoxic brain injury, uh, you can use Botox followed by a FDS to FTP transfer. All right, Rachel, you want to take us home and go through some of the miscellaneous topics? That was a great job, Hannah, for a couple of really difficult topics. So miscellaneous stuff for split thickness skin graft donor sites. We remember this test question, an occlusive dressing with a hydrocolloid polymer complex like duoderm, opsite or tegaderm minimizes discomfort and a semi-permeable is favorable for infection and re-epithelialization. So if a question asks, what is the least painful dressing for a, for the donor site, you want a occlusive dressing. 
Not zero form. Just, not zero form, which is which what we, we all use. use. <laughs> yeah. For the hand transplant uh, patients, there are different types of rejection, which we have been tested on. There is hyperacute, which is rejected within minutes to hours due to preformed antibodies. And this will thrombose the capillaries. Next is acute humoral rejection. This is rapidly induced after exposure to the graft. So it's antibody mediated, and this occurs within days. This is treated with plasma phoresis and anti B cell reagents. Acute cellular or T cell rejection is activated against donor antigens. And this is at three to six months. And you can use increased doses of your immunosuppression. And then chronic rejection is typically both antibody and cell mediated. And remember that skin is the most likely to elicit an IgM or IgG immune response that results in cellular destruction. So it is the most antigenic and that has to do with the Langerhans cells. If you remember next, we'll talk about high pressure paint injuries. So this is toxic and has a high rate of amputation, if not treated operatively. So it requires debridement and serial dressing changes. And like I said, it has a high complication rate. Finally, leech therapy, which we frequently use for our flaps or replants, or hopefully not frequently. The bacteria associated is a gram-negative aromonas. For adults, you want to use ciprofloxacin. You can use ceftriaxone in children as a prophylactic agent against infection. And then remember that tetracyclines and augmentin have high resistance against aromonas. And that is it for our fingertip. Amputations, replantations, dupatrins, and vascular disorders. So thank you for tuning in with us. Thank you. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.